please, uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. Luke 6, 27 to 36 is our scripture reading this morning. And then our sermon passage today is 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 to 19. 2 Samuel 10. 1 to 19. That's the whole chapter. Um, That's all 19 verses of chapter 10. So again, our scripture reading, Luke 6, 27 to 36, our sermon passage, 2 Samuel 10, 1 to 19. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. There is nothing better for you than to give your full attention to God's word as it is now read. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them." If you love those who love you, what benefit is is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah. 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Ma'akah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 1,200 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men, and the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gates. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Ma'akah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. 
And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadazer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Halam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadazer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together, crossed the Jordan, and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's pray. Our gracious and most holy God, thank you for preserving your word so that we can hold it in our hands today. Lord, we do not worship our Bibles, but we do worship the one who spoke, who breathed out, who caused your word to be inscripturated, to be written down, and to be preserved. Lord, we are thankful for the countless generations of men and women who have held your word dear to them. For the scribes, dear Lord, who first set them down onto parchment and vellum and even tablets of clay. We are grateful, Lord, for how you have overseen the transmission of your word down to our day. So that what we have before us, while a translation, while not the original autographs of anything that was written in antiquity, it is true and it is reliable and it is authoritative and it is your word. Lord, help us to sit under the preaching and the teaching of your word now. We pray, Lord, that we would not subject your word to our scrutiny, but rather that we would be subject to the scrutiny of your word. Because we know that your word is living and active and that it cuts like a sword down to the very marrow of our being. And so we pray, dear Lord, that your word, like a surgeon's scalpel, would expose, would lay bare our sin. And that you, by your spirit, would convict us. And make us desire, dear Lord, to follow you, to walk with you, to be obedient to you, to glorify your holy name. But more than that, Lord, we pray that your word would show to us your wonderful and mighty deeds. So that we can say, along with the hymnist, whatever my God ordains is right. Whatever he has set down according to his plan is good. So Lord, please bless us now as your word is preached. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. 
Now, a few weeks back when we were in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we saw that the chapter was about David making good on this covenant that he had made with his best friend Jonathan many, many years before, perhaps as, uh, as early as 20 years prior. He made good on this covenant that he made. He had promised Jonathan that he would not cut off Jonathan, Jonathan's house from his steadfast love, from his covenant faithfulness. And we also saw that that word that's translated covenant faithfulness, it could also be translated as kindness or covenant faithfulness as it was back in chapter 9. And so after life had settled down a bit, after David had received a bit of rest from the enemies who surrounded him, he began to search for someone who remained from Saul's household. And he found out that one of Saul's former servants, Ziba, was still alive and was around. And so David summoned him to Jerusalem, you'll remember. And when Ziba Ziba arrived there, David asked him if there was any one of Saul's descendants, any one from Jonathan's house who still remained. And Ziba told him about Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, who was crippled in both of his legs. And David immediately called for Mephibosheth to come to Jerusalem to live with him there and to eat at his table. David was fulfilling his promise to show covenant faithfulness, that is hesed, that's the the Hebrew word behind our translations, to one of Jonathan's household. And that same word, hesed, it shows up again in our chapter this morning. But here it's translated loyally two times in verse 2. And Dale Davis, in his commentary on this chapter, he writes, I think the writer wants to cast David as the Hesed king, the Hesed doing king. At the very first, David appears as the faithful king, eager to act kindly slash loyally towards Saul's family. And then, as the grateful king, careful, careful to act kindly toward those outside of Israel. Because of this shared theme of covenant faithfulness, chapters 9 and 10 go hand in hand together. One bleeds right into the other. The royal family in question, remarkably enough, just happens to be the ruling family of the Ammonites. The same family you most likely will remember from over a year back, whose king was defeated by Saul and his army when they... The king Nahash attacked Jabesh-Gilead in 1 Samuel 11. And you remember that it was the Jabesh-Gileadites who, after Saul was killed in battle, and after Jonathan was killed in battle, they are the ones who went in and got the bones off of the walls and took care of them because they remembered Saul's goodness to them. The Ammonites are an old enemy of Israel's, to whom David has decided to show steadfast love in the wake of the previous king's death. And so as we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this thought. God's plan is perfect, and his purposes are for the good of those who love him. Again, God's plan is perfect, and his purposes are for the good of those who love him. The sermon has three parts. The first, I've entitled Kindness and Contempt. The second, Behind and Before. And the third, Defiance and Defeat. Worked really hard on those alliterations, I must say. Again, Kindness and Contempt, that's the first point of the sermon. The second, Behind and Before. And the third, Defiance and Defeat. So let's look at the first section, the first part of the sermon Kindness and contempt. Verse 1 says, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. 
Now this is a very vague timestamp, and most of the commentators agree that it's, in, it's unspecific about when this is actually taking place. It's after the events of chapter 9, but we don't exactly know in the chronology, uh, of the grand chronology, the grand scheme of things, where it takes place. And so it's unclear when the events of chapter 10 take place. But at some point after the events of chapter 9, and the king of the Ammonites died, and his son took his place as king. Now this enmity between the Ammonites that was ancient, it somehow has been dealt with. In some ways, apparently, David has buried the hatchet between the Ammonites and the Israelites. A hatchet which was very active even as recently as Saul when he was king. And David in verse 2 says, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. A change had taken place. David, it appears, had decided at some point along the way to do good, to show love to his enemies. Even as Jesus commands his disciples, it commands us to love Not only those who do good to us, it's easy to love those who do good to us, but to love those who hate us and who have done us harm. However, because we're dealing not just with two individuals, but with two nations, hostilities get rekindled very quickly because of the events in our passage, which serve as the backdrop to the story of David and Bathsheba in chapters 11 and 12. And so you see that chapters 9 through 12 are really a cohesive unit. They fit very well and very nicely together. And so having decided, David having decided that he would deal loyally with uh, this son of the king uh, Nahash, verse 2 continues, so he sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So far, so good. That's about as far as that goes, but so far, so good. Now, the land of the Ammonites was nearly due east of Jerusalem. It was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They were a neighboring country. They were against the border, which was the Jordan River, with Israel. And David wants to keep up the goodwill between the two of them, despite the death of their king. He understands that a shift might take place, because the king with whom he was friends has died, and now his son has taken his place. And so we have to admit that politics are involved, as they always would be in these kinds of things. But we shouldn't think of this as a purely political move on the part of David. He is demonstrating what it means to love your neighbor by honoring a Nahash. And one commentator writes, Indeed, David's loyalty wished to honor the deceased and to assure its weight anew. Now, this word translated honor in our passage, it's found in verse 3. It can also mean weight or to be heavy. We might say that David understood the gravity of the situation and sought to express it by sending ambassadors, emissaries, to console the king's son on his behalf. But the new son, Nahash's son, Hanun, he does not see it that way. It doesn't appear that he actually speaks with any of David's men face to face. Their words from David are conveyed to him by some of Hanun's men, his princes, who then relay the message to Hanan. But they do so with commentary. They do so with a hermeneutic of suspicion about what David's men have said. Their assessment of David's message goes beyond merely being skeptical, however. They impute evil motives to David. 
They've taken David's actions and words and misconstrued them to their king, which sets the stage for the war that is about to come. And so Hanun's reaction to what his men tell him sounds somewhat comical to our modern ears. What does he do? Verse 4 says that, So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half of the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Now I can remember as a student up at Westminster outside of Philadelphia, uh, the Amish country very close by, Lancaster, PA, it's all right there. There were times where we would make trips out to the Lancaster area to visit uh, my wife's uh, grandmother who lived in a retirement home there, a Presbyterian retirement home in Lancaster, PA. And I remember hearing stories. I would follow close. I was interested in the Amish people and what they did, their customs. It was fascinating to me. A very different, they were a cultural artifact. They decided to freeze uh, themselves in the late 19th century. But one of the things that they would do to shame one another, and I can remember hearing this reading a report in the local newspaper about this time when some Amish men uh, broke into someone else's house or some kind of assembly and they, they, they yanked the beards of the Amish men to the point where they pulled them out. And that was both painful and shameful. And so, to me, as an outsider, I read it and thought it was somewhat funny. It seems kind of strange, it's bizarre, but somewhat humorous. But what we need to understand is that David's kindness, his compassion, is met with contempt from Hanun. Now some might wonder, what's the big deal? I'm sure, as I read this over the years, I've thought, well, it's not that big of a deal. Why start a war over this? Shaving off half their beards, making them go back home half naked? It seemed kind of funny to me years ago when I was younger. But as one commentator points out, one should not underestimate the extent of this intervention, what Hanun's men do to David's men. It is on a national scale and violates Israel's very being. Hanun violates diplomats, representatives of a nation. Now we understand this, or we ought to. What do we do? How do we guard our diplomats ordinarily? I think we can probably think of an incident not so very long ago that we seem to fail to do this. But ordinarily, we have forces on the ground to protect our embassies around the world. We have Marines with fairly serious arms to make sure that our emissaries, our ambassadors, and the staff of the embassy, that they can be protected. Well, another commentator writes that this humiliation of David's emissaries was virtually a declaration of war. It's provocation demanding a suitable rebuff. Again, how is this a declaration of war? Well, thankfully, a third commentator comes to our aid. He writes... This is because shaving off half their beards attacked their dignity as adults, since Israelite males had a full beard apart from expressions of mourning, while exposing their buttocks and genitals was something normally done only to prisoners of war, as one commentator helpfully explains. And we understand that that kind of thing, the exposure of a person's nakedness, in a concentration camp, for instance, that's, that's a war crime. Even today, it's not merely frowned upon, it's a very serious violation of human rights. And so now we have, I think, a fuller picture. And we begin to understand that for David as king, he cannot merely turn the other cheek as he might do if he were a private person. When David hears of the incident, verse 5 says, He sent men to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And he, the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown 
and then return. Of course, Jericho would have been right across or just a few miles in from the Jordan River to the west of uh, the Ammonite land, uh, which is across the Jordan River to the east. And so in doing this, David prevents further humiliation of these poor men. Hanun, because of his advisor's terrible counsel, has just caused an international accident, or, or incident, rather. And J.P. Fockelman writes, A people which reacts so horridly to compassion is asking for war. Let's say that again. Because I think that applies to things beyond our passage today. A people which reacts so horridly to compassion is asking for war. And war is exactly what David will give them. And that leads us to the second part of the sermon, behind and before. Verse 6 says, When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Ma'akah with 1,000 men, and the, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. Hanun called allies to his aid from four Aramean city-states who amassed somewhere around 33,000 soldiers between them. Now on top of that would have been the Ammonite soldiers who were there around their city. They would have been considerable as well. So a vast army is arrayed on this field of battle. And what we see here is that David still has plenty of enemies who are willing to invest in his defeat. And David responds in verse 7, not with words, but by sending Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And verse 8 says that the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle at the entrance of the gate, presumably the entrance to Rabbah, their capital city, which is present-day Ammon, which is the capital of Jordan. And the Syrians and the men of Tob and Ma'akah were out in the open country, and when jo- Joab and David's mighty men arrived, Joab saw that they were going to have to fight on multiple fronts. They were not exactly surrounded, not in a perfect sense, but they had people in front of them and people behind them, soldiers who were going to try to grasp them in their claws. They wanted to attack the Ammonites at Rabbah, but would be surrounded on either side by the Ammonites' allies. Now, this situation that Joab and his men find themselves in, it reminded me of one of the stories that came out of uh, the Korean War, specifically regarding the 1st Marine Division. Some of you maybe have heard this account. It was the Battle of the, the Chosin Reservoir in North Korea during the Korean War. It took place in December of 1950. Degree, the temperature uh, was hovering below uh, minus 30 degrees, so minus 30 to 35 to 40 degrees in the early days of December 1950. And there are some major characters, major figures, historical figures that were involved in this operation. Major General O.P. Howland Mad Smith was there. He was the commander of the 1st Marine Division. But also, we can't forget, we can never forget, Colonel Lewis B. Chesty Puller. He was in command of the 1st Marine Regiment at the Battle of the Chosin Reservoir. And at Chosin, the 1st Marine Division found itself completely surrounded by 22 Chinese divisions. And at least at that time, a Chinese division was made up of 16,500 men. Marine divisions were made up of 12,500 men. So 12,500 men, somewhere close to, surrounded by 300,000 plus Chinese soldiers. And at this battle, as they realize they're surrounded, they have to get out. They've got a 70-mile march, foot march, forced march uh, north to get away from the Chosin Reservoir. General Smith said, retreat, 
We're not retreating. We're just advancing in a different direction. Now, he was a Marine, so what he said was slightly more colorful than that if you go to look up that quote. And upon realizing that they were surrounding Chesty Puller, who's the hero of all Marines, is quoted as saying, they are in front of us, they're behind us, and we are flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away from us now. (laughs) And under General Smith's leadership, they were able to break through the enemy. They made a 70-mile march north on foot to safety, and in the process, they inflicted the highest casualty rate on an enemy in history. They destroyed seven... Chinese divisions along the way. Now, one of the advantages of being surrounded is that you don't have to go far to find the enemy to engage in a fight. And that's exactly the situation that Joab and his men found themselves in. And so Joab's solution to Israel's problem was to to divide up his forces. We're not told how many he has. With him commanding a force to fight the, the, the Syrians and his brother Abishai commanding a force to fight against the Ammonites. And Joab told his brother his simple plan in verse 11. If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. And then Joab says this. It's the one theological remark in the whole chapter coming from the lips of Joab. He says it in verse 12. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, you may remember that Joab very callously murdered Abner, one of David's top generals. Abner had defected to David from Saul. He made that promise that he was going to bring along the northern kingdom of Israel under David's reign. And he did this. He callously murdered Abner, Joab did, in chapter 3 to avenge the killing of Joab's brother, Asahel, in chapter 2 by none other than Abner. It was a very... A very callous, it was a very cold-blooded murder of Abner. And so it may be that these words of Joab in verse 12 reflect a kind of battlefield faith that will fade when the fighting ends. No atheists and foxholes and all that. But Dale Davis in his commentary sees something more here, and I think it's wise to heed his counsel. Regarding Joab's statement, he says, and may the Lord do what, the statement, and may the Lord do what seems good to him, Davis writes, I hold that this affirmation is any believer's firmest solace in all life's uncertainties. May the Lord do what seems good to him. If you trust that God is good, as the blessing so many of us learned when we were children says, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. If you trust that God is good, then you can trust that whatever circumstances you find yourself in, these are good. Though it might not seem that way at the time. We know that ultimately all things work together for good for those who love God. We know this. It's taught to us in our Bibles, and yet it's hard to to believe it when we are in the middle of hardship and strife, in the middle of sorrow, and in the middle of realizing that we live in a curse-filled world and that we are subject to that common curse. We know that ultimately all things work together for those who love God. So Joab seems to exhibit an implicit trust that if things don't go well for them in this battle, if they are defeated by the Ammonites and these Aramean armies, that it will still be good because it has come from God's hand. 
Let it be each of our prayer that we might be able to say the same with full conviction. That brings us to the third and the final section of the sermon this morning, defiance and defeat. Verses 13 and 14, there's a lot of fleeing that takes place, but none of it, thankfully, uh, is fleeing by the Israelites. When Joab and his men went to fight in battle against the Syrians, the Syrians fled from before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians, these Aramean armies, had fled, they too fled and went back to their city. They, they holed up in Rabbah. But the Syrians, were, Syrians weren't happy about it. They weren't happy with the fact that they had fled in fear from before the Israelites. And so in verse 15, they gather themselves together again. They prepare themselves for war. And in verse 16, Hadadazar, he sent and brought out the Syrians who, uh, uh, to the, who to the north, from the north, beyond the Euphrates River, and they came down to Halam with Shobak as their commander. David found out about this army that had arrayed itself at Halam. And in verse 17, we read that he gathered all of Israel together. They crossed the Jordan River. They came to Halam and they fight against these Syrians. There's not a lot of detail, but what we do find out is that David and his men uh, uh, defeated the Syrians, killing 700 men who uh, rode on the chariots. They killed 40,000 horsemen. These were the, the cavalry. These two categories of soldiers would have been the most difficult to defeat. The chariot was basically the tank of that day. And horses were light-armored infantry of that day. They could move around fairly quickly. It was very difficult. There's no mention of how many foot soldiers were killed in the process, but we have to imagine that it was of a great magnitude. And Shobak, the commander of the Syrian army, was killed there as well. And after this, after this massive defeat, the servants of Hadad-Dazer, the king of Syria, made peace with Israel and became subject to them and would not fight on behalf of the Ammonites any longer. Enough is enough, they said. But the Ammonites are not finished. We're not done with them yet. As we said before, this sets the stage for what takes place in chapters 11 and 12 when David forces himself on Bathsheba, when David murders her husband Uriah the Hittite, and when David is subsequently rebuked by the prophet Nathan. Now, if we are correct that the events of these chapters actually take place prior to what took place earlier, what's described in chapter 8, where David wins great victories against the Syrians, he sets up a garrison, you remember, up to the north near the Euphrates River among the Syrians so that they can't do this again. Why did, why did the author of 2 Samuel decide to put these two events side by side in the book? One of David's greatest victories, alongside one of his greatest failures. And failure doesn't capture the import of what took place with David and Bathsheba. It was a heinous, heinous sin. Why are these two events, these two incidents, why are they set side by side in God's word? Well, these chapters, at the very least, they serve to show David in all of his complexity as a human being. One moment he can show covenant love to an enemy of his people, and then he can have a great victory in battle, and then in another moment he can behave in a manner that is so heinous that we still talk about it today and can't get our minds fully around what took place. 
And it's in this juxtaposition of love and victory on the one hand and great sin on the other that points out the great need of even the greatest of people. We have to be careful about whom we worship. David was a great man. But, oh no, he wasn't. And that, at the very least, is what the author of 2 Samuel is reminding us of. We cannot put men on pedestals. Or women, for that matter. We cannot put human beings on pedestals to be worshipped, but that is what we are prone to do. And so often we do it with David. Because he's such a great hero to love. David represents the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of God's people. He was a man after God's own heart. And it's safe to say this of any person who belongs to the Lord. Why? Because God's Word says that He's given all of us who are regenerate, all of us who have been born again, He's given us all a new heart. And yet none of us is fully incapable of doing that which David does in the next chapter. He was a man after God's own heart. He sought to show covenant love and faithfulness not only to Jonathan's house, but also to his enemies. But David also could behave in terribly sinful ways. And so what we see, this highest picture of humanity that the Old Testament has to offer to us, he still reminds us that only God is good. In fact, God is incapable of sinning, of doing evil. God isn't the author of sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. And as God the Son who came in the flesh, Jesus is good and perfect We read that though he was in the flesh, he came in the flesh, he was made like us in every way, and yet he never sinned, not even once. And so what does Jesus say to that man who calls him good? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Why does he say that to him? Because he wants that man to draw his own conclusions about who Jesus is. He's not denying that he's good. He wants the man to realize that he is God who is good. Only God is good. And everything that God does is good. Jesus Christ is God. And He came, and He lived, and He died, and He was raised again so that you and I could be good like Him. But we will only ever fully be good like him when we see him face to face. When we're made perfect like he is. And that, brothers and sisters, is his ultimate good purpose for you and me. And that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you are good. And so we pray that we could pray exactly like Joab prayed. That you, O Lord, would do whatever seems good to you. 
We pray that we would have the faith to trust you. To do that which is good in every circumstance, in every case. But we pray that we would seek to glorify you by loving you with all of our heart and loving our neighbor. We know that everything that we do is tainted with sin. And yet we pray, Lord, that that would not become an excuse for us not to do anything. Lord, please help us to seek the welfare of our neighbor. Help us to be good neighbors, to love our neighbors. All for the purpose of bringing glory to your holy and good name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.